My name is Jim Fleming, and this is Our Sunday School. I'm coming to you from the Hickson campus of Stewart Heights Baptist Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee. And we'd love to have you come and visit us. But if you're not in the area, please go to OurSundaySchool.com to see all of the resources we saw in class. All right, good morning, everybody. Hey, there you go. Uh, So welcome to our Sunday school class. Uh, I guess everybody's pretty aware that uh, Jim Fleming had his gallbladder forcibly removed from his body (laughs) on Friday. So he's not with us. So if everybody will keep uh, Jim in your prayers and uh, he'll get to feeling better. So we're going to do this a little bit differently today. I am not teaching this lesson because two days is not enough to do this. So I'm simply going to read the text and then um, David's going to play a video. Uh, Jim recorded the lesson earlier this week. We'll see if... So everybody's familiar with the website. If you need to go find the text, um, find the notes. They're all right here on OurSundaySchool.com. This week is the halfway point for Jude. So we'll... um, in uh, verses 12 through 15. And again... uh, If you find something interesting in the lesson, you'd like to share it with the class and discuss it, you can do it on the Facebook page. So, is that it? Yep. So if everybody will read with me, we're in uh, Jude. You should have the uh, text on your table. We'll read together. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ. Mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain men have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turned the grace of our God into lewdness and denied the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. But I want to remind you, though you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterwards destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Likewise, also these dreamers defile the flesh, reject authority, and speak evil of dignitaries. Yet Michael, the archangel, in contending with the devil when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these speak evil of whatever they do not know, and whatever they know naturally, like brute beasts. In these things they corrupt themselves. Woe to them! For they have gone in the way of Cain, have run greedily in the error of Balaam for profit, and perished in the rebellion of Korah. These are spots in your love feasts, while they feast with you without fear, serving only themselves. They are clouds without water, carried about by the winds. Late autumn trees without fruit, twice dead, pulled up by the roots. Raging waves of the sea, foaming up their own shame. Wandering stars for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. Now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men also, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousand of his saints to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds, which they have committed in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. 
These are grumblers, complainers, walking according to their own lusts. And they mouth great swelling words, flattering people to gain advantage. But you, beloved, remember the words which were spoken before by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. How they told you that there would be mockers in the last time who would walk according to their own ungodly lusts. These are sensual persons who cause divisions, not having the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. And on some have compassion, making a distinction, but others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. Well, good morning, and thank you, Josh, for reading. I appreciate that. And if you've got your Bibles open to Jude, uh, we'll go ahead and jump right in. Uh, before I forget, I just want to offer a big thank you for all of you that have prayed. Uh, text message, Facebook message, emailed, uh, sent notes of encouragement. I greatly appreciate that. And uh, just really want you to let you know I, I love you guys and I miss you this morning. Uh, and uh, didn't want to miss this series. So this is my way of uh, making sure that we got uh, this information continues through this series. So first question up on our handout this morning is uh, in the explained section, is there any literary or structural observations? Uh, and it should be pretty obvious that Jude is continuing his warnings against the apostates in this section by uh, verses 12 through 15 by giving his audience several uh, comparisons and then another reference to a pseudepigraphal work, uh, First Enoch. And you may have a study Bible that references this, and if it does, that's great. And good luck going and finding a copy of First Enoch. Uh, that can be a bit challenging, and it's really a, a different, odd kind of a read if you ever do find a copy. So. Uh, next question up is, what are the most repeated words in Jude? Uh, we've mentioned this several times, the idea that Jude is this continuously contrasting between uh, the, the certain men, them, they, that have come in, and you, uh, those are your next two blanks, the they and then the you, uh, that he is drawing this distinction between uh, these that are not truly of the faith and then you that are. Uh, and the today's text is virtually exclusively talking about the they, uh, these men that have crept in. So let's uh, jump right in and take a look at the words. So verse 12, first part of our text for today, so these are spots. Uh, and if you've got a different translation in the New King James, you may have a different word than spots. Uh, the original word was used to denote rocks in the sea. Uh, this is from uh, Rogers and Rogers' work, the New Linguistic Exegetical Key to the New Greek New Testament. Uh, this word was used to de denote rocks in the sea close to the shore and covered with water, and so were dangerous to vessels. So if you've ever done any sailing, uh, if you've been on a ship, you know that rocks are not your friend. Uh, and these would be rocks that were in places that were especially dangerous because you're about to land, you're about to come to a place of rest, and uh, that's where these are. And that's your, your blank there for spots, a ledge or a reef of rock in the sea. So these are, these are tricky men that are going to be looking like everything's peaceful, but something is not correct under the surface. So these are spots in your love feasts. Uh, this Greek word is agape. 
uh, and it literally just means love. Um, the idea here is that um, when used in certain forms in the New Testament, it can actually mean the meal that New Testament believers celebrated with each other. Um, uh, it was possibly communion, uh, possibly once a week. Uh, could have been more than communion, could have been more than once a week. Uh, but we know that this was a common event in the life of the early New Testament church, that believers would get together uh, and they would have a feast uh, around which they would celebrate Jesus Christ. Uh, so these are spots in your love feast. So in this place where it is designated to set aside a very special time of peace and truth and rejoicing in the gospel, there's dangers, there's rocks that you have to be on the lookout for. So this is a very scary uh, concept. Uh, so these spots in your love feasts, while they feast, so they, again, the uh, certain men that have crept in, while they feast with you without fear. So this word feast is a present participle, so your next blank is repeatedly. So they're repeatedly doing this. This is not a, oh, this happened one time, what are we going to do? You know, this is over and over and over and over again, these repeated uh, feasts. They would feast without fear, the aphobos. Uh, ah is the opposite at the beginning of that Greek word. So the aphobos, without fear, uh, serving themselves. And again, this is a present participle, so this is repeatedly. Your next blank uh, after serving is repeatedly serving. And this word just means to tend as a shepherd. Your next blank there. The, um, and th- this particular word, along with a couple of other things in Jude, is one of the things that makes a lot of commentaries and a lot of commentators believe that these were elders in the church, which is truly scary, right? Uh, That these would be elders in the church that were acting as shepherds in a way, but were only tending themselves. They didn't tend the rest of the flock. Uh, They only tended themselves. So they tended as a shepherd uh, for themselves. And then Jude gives a series of metaphors. And I want you to get a visual as we read through this of where these metaphors exist in the universe. So where is this? Where is this? Where is this? Where is this? And this is actually one of the only places, uh, Darla, that uh, Jude digresses from his trend of groups of threes and moves into a group of four. So is a, he shifts from his three to four here, just uh, from a literary perspective. So these are clouds uh, without water, and they are carried about. And this is present participle, so this is, again, repeatedly carried about. Uh, they are carried about uh, in the winds. So if you are a farmer, as many people would have been in this day and age, uh, and you see a cloud come up. Well, this is good, right? There's going to be rain. It's going to replenish my crops. This is going to help my fields. And then the cloud ends up not having any water in it. Well, that's a a very discouraging thing, right? So what do clouds do without water? Well, they make you think it's going to rain, but they don't actually rain. There's a degree of frustration there. And then the next metaphor is uh, winds. I'm sorry, as late autumn trees without fruit. And, and there's a lot of ways to translate this, but the, the bottom line is there is a sense in which there should have been some fruit from the time we began the season to the end of the season. We get to the end of the season, and there's no fruit. So what do you do with a tree that doesn't produce any fruit? Well, Jesus gave us direction on this as well, right? He said that late autumn trees without fruit, they're twice dead because they're pulled up by the roots. So you, you get rid of them. Right? They have, they have no value. There's no, there's no worth here. Uh, just like these certain men that have crept in, and they, they provide no value, no worth to the church because there's no fruit from 
their teaching or their leading or their service or their lack of any of those things. It's just fruitless. So his next uh, metaphor is in verse 13, raging waves. So this fierce, wild, raging waves uh, foaming up. And this is, again, another present participle. So this repeatedly foaming up. Um, uh, Michael Green, in his commentary on Second Jude and Second Peter and Jude, says that the poet Moschus uses this particular word of the seaweed and other rubbish born on the crest of the waves and then deposited on the beach. So this not only has a sense of you know this this foam that, and if you've ever been to the beach, you you know you see a wave, it's a wave, right? You see a wave with foam, well, it's pretty, but it doesn't add any value. There's not any additional uh, benefit that comes from having a wave with foam, right? The foam doesn't serve to do anything. It's just looks only. So um, this word, again, was used uh, to describe all this junk that kind of came up out of the ocean. So, so it would have been the, the first century listeners would have heard, oh, this foam that just it generates garbage, right? It just generates garbage. It's not of any real value to the listeners or the, the viewers. So you've got the waterless clouds, you've got the dead trees, you've got the foaming waves, and then uh, foaming up what? It's foaming up their own shame, right? So this, again, this negative thing is coming up and out. And then the fourth is the wandering stars, the the uh, planetes, uh, asters. And this is where we get our English word planet, but at the time... um, the, the wording had not shifted over to have its own unique word for planet. It, uh, all the planets were kind of lumped together in the stars. Uh, now, there were those that understood that these specific stars had recurring patterns and recurring cycles to them. That was, was very well known in astronomy. Um, but, uh, but the word here is just uh, uh, to describe figuratively, you see in the definition, an erratic teacher. It's somebody who just wanders all around. And the, the reality is, if unless we are rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ that is taught specifically in the scriptures, we will wander around. Um, and you've heard me say many, many times that one of the things we want to do in Sunday school and in our study of the scripture is to remain very, very close to the text. So if the text says this, I want to be right here with the text so that we are very, very close to the text. So you've got these wandering stars for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. And what a beautiful time to talk about the blackness of darkness because where are stars? Where they're in the blackness of the darkness of space, right? So he's he's extending this metaphor and saying there's this blackness of darkness forever. So so four different metaphors. So the first is on the land. So you have the trees, and then you have on the in the air the clouds, and then you have the sea, which is the waves. And then you have the heaven, which is the stars. So he is he is covering all of creation in saying whether it's on the land, in the air, in the sea, or in the heavens afar, uh, there is an, a metaphor to be made here of uh, all of these different spheres in which you could draw analogies to disobey God. Uh, Green uh, says in his commentary, Second uh, Peter and Jude, he says, the wicked angels lost their heavenly home by disobeying God and fell to destruction. And Enoch, right? So I want you to see the contrast here. So if you think back in the, in the Old Testament where 
Enoch is referenced, what what happens to Enoch? Well, he walked with God, and then he was not, because God took him. Okay? So, the wicked angels, they lost their heavenly home by disobeying God and fell to destruction. But Enoch, Enoch gained heaven by obeying God and was saved. He had the faith there and was saved. In, in these two verses, June then has evoked a swift, bold picture of the men he is castigating. They are as dangerous as sunken rocks, as selfish as perverted shepherds, as useless as rainless clouds, as dead as barren trees, as dirty as the foaming sea, and as certain of doom as the fallen angels. And Jude's not done yet. We've got two more verses in today's text. So he continues on in verse 14. Now Enoch, the seventh from Adam. Uh, and it, it, Enoch is the seventh from Adam. If you count Adam and you count Enoch, so you got to go uh, Adam and then five more generations and then Enoch. Uh, so he's the seventh from Adam. He prophesied uh, about these men also. And if you know your Old Testament and you specifically know the first few chapters of Genesis, you can go read them through several times and you will not find a prophecy from Enoch. It's not in the Old Testament. So what we're referencing here is not even the deuterocanonical books, the Apocrypha. We're referencing the pseudepigraphal books, these these even more distantly not trusted works of Jewish literature from afar. Uh, and in uh, First Enoch, uh, Enoch makes this particular prophecy. He says, behold, and this is an imperative, so this idea that get our attention, this is, a, this is prophetic language, this is look and see, the Lord, the Kyrios, he comes with ten thousands of his saints. And the word there for ten thousands is myrias. Uh, it's where we get our English word myriad. That's uh, your next blank, M-Y-R-I-A-D, myriad. So he comes with uh, ten thousand of his saints. Uh, and just to, i got to stop here for just a second and talk math. Um, it's not, it doesn't technically mean 10,000. It just means a lot, an innumerable number. And 10,000 was generally an extremely large number at that time. Uh, so this was a number that was associated with this. Uh, but it could easily be uh, an indefinite number of his saints. So with 10,000s of his saints, to what? To execute judgment. So he is not coming to love and uh, have a, a nice, uh, peaceful existence where the evil that is against him, these certain men, can live coexist with those true believers, he's coming to execute judgment. Right? This is clear language about the coming judgment to the earth. So he's going to come and execute judgment uh, of all. And to convict, uh, this word means... Uh, to punish or to convince all who are ungodly. And now we start to see this this repetition of the word ungodly in uh, this verse 15. So to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly need, uh, ungodly deeds. Uh, and th- this is the same word used earlier in verse 15, um, uh, which they have committed in an ungodly way. And of all the harsh things which the uh, ungodly sinners have spoken against him. And and what typically happens, um, and I'll just stop here and I want to talk for a second and I'll give you an explanation. But what typically happens when we take the truth of, when you take the truth of the gospel, right, the truth of scripture, and you say, I'm going to separate from that 
and I want my truth or my popularity or my shepherding or my whatever to be on top of that, what eventually happens is that you will elevate this in your mind and you will begin to despise the truth of the gospel. There will be a hardening here to the reality of the truth of the scripture. And this word is, the word for harsh is uh, the Greek word uh, scleros. Uh, And those of you in the medical field may have already figured out, this is where we get our English word sclerosis. Uh, S-C-L-E-R-O-S-I-S. S-C-L-E-R-O-S-I-S. So this is this hardening. So this, the they convict them of all the harsh things, of all these hard things, which the ungodly sinners, this is the word, repeated word here, uh, these ungodly sinners have spoken. So they have uttered, they have, this is the word for preach many times or, or talk in the New Testament uh, against, and the hymn is capital, this is talking about God. Um, so, so you want to always be aware, always be aware of how people talk about God. So do people take the Scripture and the truth of the Scripture and elevate it above their own speech? Or do you flip this around, right? And so you always want to be very careful of listening to anybody who says, well, I know the Bible says that, but what I say is this. And that's a problem. That's just a problem. So, um, so to kind of, I want to wrap up here just a little bit around the idea of uh, what Jude is quoting, and I want to make sure that just because you quote, you understand a concept that just because we quote something doesn't mean that it is one entirely true, or two that it is um, something that should be useful for everyone at all time in a spiritual sense, okay? So you can use literature or prior examples that people are familiar with to explain theological content without everything that the original source contains being completely true. So let me, let me just make you think about something for just a second. Um, Josh and I were texting uh, earlier this week about today's lesson and how this is going to work. And he made the comment that it was interesting that that first Enoch, you know, this pseudepigraphal work that's not true in a uh, comprehensive, complete, authoritative sense like the Scripture is true, that this little piece that Jude quotes then becomes Scripture because Jude incorporates it into the New Testament canon. Um, so, so he turns this tiny little piece of this pseudepigraphal work into canon by quoting it in canon. But it doesn't mean, however, it doesn't mean, this is what I want you to remember, that all of 1st Enoch is canonical, but it just illustrates that our prior point that we've studied a couple of weeks ago of using non-canonical resources as an appropriate way to teach or communicate God's truth. So uh, when you hear people talk about, hey, I read this book and I saw a spiritual truth that is taught in the scripture, that this book brings out, and here's a new, fresh way to describe it. Okay, that's great. Because uh, we want to go through life looking for and seeing God and His work and His principles at play, and we want to be able to describe these as articulately as we can in, a, in myriad ways. Okay? So, 
Uh, now, I, I will tell you that there's uh, a couple different schools of thought on this because some people, some commentators will say that, well, you know, Jude, he viewed this as absolute canon, this uh, uh, first Enoch. And Jude doesn't say this at all, so don't don't put words in his mouth. Uh, Brian's got this new statement that he's been making the last few months. He says, "Don't don't hear what I'm not saying, and I and I don't want you to hear what Jude is not saying. Jude is not saying you can trust all of First Enoch. Jude is saying God is coming to judge ungodly people. That is what Jude is saying. So a quote here from uh, Michael Green in his work on Second Peter and Jude. He says whether or not. Uh, Jude recorded First Enoch as inspired is perhaps beside the point, for he's quoting a book that both he and his readers will know and respect. He speaks to them in language which they will readily understand, and that remains one of the most important elements in the communication of Christian truth. So, so you say, well, well what does all that mean? All right, so we'll we'll do the application and the personalization here in just a second, but I want you to walk out this morning knowing, okay. I want you to walk out this morning knowing that God has worked all things in your life to glorify himself, including the things that are your experiences with those pieces of literature or art or any type of artistic uh, or literary device so that we can look at those experiences in our past and talk about what God is doing or is going to do, right? Look for the value and the theological richness in everything. Wear those lenses in the world. They will serve you well. So let's look at a couple of uh, applications and personalizations. So application number one, uh, the ungodly cause real danger. When Jude picked that word for rocks, he wasn't joking around. Because rocks damage ships. It's serious. Ships sink because of this. And when we listen to the words of man above the words of God, this is a real problem. Lives sink and are shattered because of this. So be very careful about who you listen to because the ungodly cause real danger. So application number one. Personalization number one. Uh, What do we do with that? Well, let's, let's know how to spot the ungodly, right? I want to make sure that we compare every doctrine of man that man teaches against the truth of the Scripture so that we keep the truth of the Scripture above any doctrines of man. Uh, application number two, uh, the ungodly repeatedly cause real danger. This is not, Jude is not talking about someone who makes a mistake or a or two or three mistakes. This is over and over and over and over. This is a pattern. This is a lifestyle. This is a consistent bad message of something that is antithetical to Scripture. So let's make sure that we are not throwing people out of church or uh, reviling brothers and sisters because they made one or two mistakes. This is not what Jude is talking about. Jude is talking about patterns and lifestyle of ungodly men, and it repeatedly causes real danger. So, so what do we? How do we combat error? Well, the, the Bible gives us a couple of different ways to do this, right? Michael, we saw the example of Michael the archangel last week that the Lord rebuke you. I'm just going to speak very clearly: the Lord rebuke you, Satan. So that's that's always one option. Uh, and then another option is number two on the personalization, combat false behavior and doctrine 
with the truth of Scripture, right? We saw this over and over and over in the life of Jesus. He was tempted. He was uh, uh, tempted to, to sin in any certain way. And what did he do? He quoted Scripture. So how do we combat false teachers that come in? Well, we bury the Word of God in our hearts so that when we hear something that is false, we can immediately compare that against the truth of the Scripture and then correct as needed. So application number three, the ungodly desire, the spotlight over service. So this is this concept of the, um, the shepherds that were shepherding only themselves. They just wanted the spotlight. They wanted to be important. They wanted to have first place. Um, the New Testament is replete with uh, descriptions of these types of men. And it's all about them. It's not about anybody else. They have to be in the spotlight constantly. Uh, and it's not... It's not about their service, but it's about them being important. So, what do we? How do we? How do we handle that? What are, what's our response to that? Um, I would just say very carefully. Uh, I'm talking to me, this is for Jim, and for any other teacher that's in the room. Uh, examine our hearts to see what we desire. Do we desire to be first? Do we desire to be the most important? Do we desire to have the prominent place? Do we desire to be in charge? Do we desire to be seen? Do we desire to be heard? Or do we desire to magnify Jesus Christ? Do we desire to direct people to Him? Do we desire to tell our story so that it reflects God's story and elevates and explains and furthers the the exhortation and the uh, evangelistic effort of the gospel. This sneaks in very subtly. Um, it can be slow, it can be swift, but if you have any desire to lead in any way, shape, or form in the Christian church, you will be tempted with this. This will be a reality for you, that that I am important over the message or the truth of the scripture or the gospel of Jesus Christ or God help us, God himself. So let's just be very much on guard and examine our hearts uh, to see what we desire. Uh, and then number four, what's the point? You know, the, the, the big audacious statement that Jude makes over and over and over in Jude is that God always judges those that oppose him. Always. And, and I will put myself first in line here. God judges me for opposing him. And... Jesus took my judgment. So all of the wrath that is poured, God had uh, prepared to pour out on me, Jesus took that on the cross so that I would not have to endure that judgment, so that I could get the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And that is a story that we should tell. That is a story that makes us stand up and want to communicate the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is no way, shape, or form in which I or you are the hero of that story. Jesus and Jesus alone is the hero of that story. So what do we do uh, in response to God's judgment on those that oppose Him? Well, let's warn those that are not believers about the coming judgment. Let's warn them. And, and while we warn, there is a critical and beautiful opportunity to share and to tell about the one who took the judgment for us so that we do not have to. It's a beautiful, beautiful story. It's the greatest story that's ever been told. It's the greatest story that ever will be told. It's the story of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So 
that's the lesson for today. Um, next week, we will be, Lord willing, in Apostates Predicted, Jude uh, verses 16 through 19. So go ahead and read up on those. Uh, it's, a, it's a continuation of this they versus you uh, concept. So ask the Holy Spirit for help. Our homework at the bottom of the sheet there. Uh, read week, next, next week's lesson multiple times. Um, talk to somebody about next week's text. You can do this on our Facebook page, our Sunday School uh, you can share there as well any insights or questions that you have, uh, and then invite a member or non-member. Um, we have gotten a bit sloppy at this, so I will uh, start encouraging us again to invite, invite, invite. Uh, the world is full of people that need Jesus Christ. So go tell his story, how you were saved, and invite others so that they can participate in our community. So thanks for coming this morning. Uh, unless there are any other closing announcements, uh, if you will take the sheet of paper with the blue bar at the top, the weekly update, and pray over those prayer requests, write down any new ones that you have. Uh, pray as a table. After you have prayed as a table, you are dismissed into the sanctuary to worship, and please do so. Thanks for coming today, guys. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to subscribe to this podcast and to our weekly email. You can do both at OurSundaySchool.com.